Welcome to the new episode of the Macro Trading Floor. Every week we invite the best macro minds to not only discuss their thesis, but also to deliver an actionable trade idea. And amidst all of this investment-focused content, we also aim at having fun. This is Andreas Steno speaking. And this is Alfonso Peccatiello. How are you guys doing? We are recording on May 25th, 2022 for the records. And since our previous recording, Andreas, um, my volatility adjusted market dashboard is flashing some weird moves week over week. So let's go through them, shall we? Yeah. Uh, the first thing I see is that, of course, the rates market is now moving um, in, a v- in very interesting ways, both in the US and in the EU. The common denominator is that terminal rates are being repriced lower and that, you know, Fed funds future for December or um, the ECB implied rate as well later on for 2023 are somehow moving, but in opposite directions. That's the interesting point. So the, the terminal rate and the Fed funds futures in the US are repricing lower implied rates, while in Europe, we are having an opposite reaction where hawkish members of the ECB woke up, you know, the Dutch, the Austrians, these kind of guys. They woke up and now they're playing what I call the Bullard, the European Bullard move. So they go to the wire and they're like, ah, 50 basis points, we should do 50 basis points all of a sudden right now. And uh, of course, this is moving the front end of the market and Lagarde and Villeroy have actually come to the wire and talked about bringing rates to 0% by September and then moving to neutral rate for the first time we hear the magic word in Europe too, which seems to be around about 1% to 2%. That has repriced up interest rates in Europe at the front end, but the back end of the curve isn't reacting. So we got a sharp flattening in Europe as well. What's your take, Mr. Steno? <laughs> Uh, it's first of all interesting from an FX perspective when we get such a divergence between uh, the move in the euro curve and in the dollar curve. And it is exactly the reason why I've been wrong-footed on my uh, long dollar position. Uh, when I look at the developments in the dollar curve, um, I basically look for clues uh, in the speech from uh, from Bostich, the member of the FOMC uh, this week. Um, I think he he literally said that they could consider pausing from September and onwards should inflation be uh, headed lower uh, in a way that the Fed already anticipates. Uh, I think that was kind of a surprise to me that um, they uh, said so explicitly that a um, a pause could be on the cards already before New Year's. Um, I, I think it makes a whole lot of sense, but that's another discussion. When it comes to the ECB, 50 basis points back to zero. I think that's a no-brainer given the window of opportunity that they have. But I am still far from being convinced that they can go above zero. Uh, also, given the outlook that we have on uh, on growth in Europe. Um, if, if we look at the latest signals that we've gotten from China, then I think we should expect PMIs in, in the Euro, uh, Eurozone and, and in the US to plummet with a two to three months time lag from now. Um, it's usually so when 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 China drops uh, in momentum, it takes a short while before we see it in the Western world. Uh, so this is uh, also a chat that I saw you you shared on Twitter, Alfonso. Will it make central banks pivot or pause? That's a good question. If we really get a growth setback by by late summer. So as I posted also on the Macro Compass newsletter, when China sneezes, Europe and US catch a cold. Well, it's not a right choice of word given the, the pandemic that we have gone through over the last few years, but it just goes to show that, of course, Asia in general tends to lead PMIs-wise. Also, Korea does a very good job as a leading indicator for European PMIs, and they've been dropping. And also now we're seeing some drop in US PMIs and Europe PMIs as well. Uh, the move that we have seen, the, the, let's say, the divergence between European rates and uh, dollar rates at the front end, especially, has led to quite a rally in euro dollar from uh, basically 104-ish to 108, as we speak, almost of four big figures up. But it's not only that. I'm looking at another big FX move, Andreas, and since it's your home turf, I want to chat about that, which is in Switzerland. So the Swiss franc has been relentlessly appreciating against the dollar quite a big move in standard deviation terms over the last week or two. And I want to get your take because Switzerland has been accumulating foreign assets, trying to dump an appreciation of the the Swiss franc throughout the last 10 years, one can openly say. 
And right now, inflation is picking up in Switzerland, and it seems that the Swiss National Bank is actually changing their tune. This can be important also for cross-assets. So what's your take on the Swiss franc move? Well, uh, it is basically the last central bank to move at all. Uh, maybe we have Bank of Japan waiting in the queue as well. But uh, if, if you look at uh, the Swiss National Bank, uh, they're actually above 2% on inflation now for the first time in quite a while. Uh, they've basically struggled in the other direction due to a very strong Swiss franc uh, over the past years. Um, and interestingly, they have now hinted that they could also be on the move probably with a short time lag to the European Central Bank. But of course, that will um, also lead to uh, a, um, a repricing of the FX space, since I guess most people anticipated that the SNB would be the last central bank to move in this cycle. Now they have actually started uh, changing the stance a bit, allowing the FX to also uh, reflect that. Uh, so I, I actually tend to think that the Swiss franc is is a good place to um, to hide in this kind of scenario that we're looking into also asset, asset-wise when it comes to risk assets. And Andreas, the Swiss National Bank has accumulated throughout the years about $1 trillion equivalent of FX reserves, a portfolio which is big. And it's interestingly comprised not only of bonds, but also of equities. They own about 250, basically, yes, they own about 250 billion of foreign equities, mostly dollar equities. So if they would decide to actually use FX reserves as a, as a tool to try and, um, uh, you know, basically stop the um, the FX move we have seen in the Swiss franc. They, for the first time in a while, would be selling foreign assets, which is which is an interesting thing. They've been accumulating those for for ten plus years. Um, the other moves we have seen, of course, over the last few weeks, uh, a few uh, last week, is in credit spreads and in equities. This trend hasn't really changed. Credit spreads are leaking wider, equities are leaking lower, but it's all of an orderly move so far, one has to say. So if you look at levels of implied volatility, the VIX or the VIX curve as well, there is no panic yet there at all. It's an orderly move. Mm. And um, you know, what do you expect in terms of risk assets? Are we ripe for a short-term bounce or will you just you know keep on playing defensive there? Well, it was, of course, a piece of decent news that uh, Bostich from the Federal Reserve hinted of, of this pause from September and onwards. Uh, but I still struggle uh, to find anything good to say about uh, risk assets. Uh, if we look at the disconnection between the economic outlook uh, surveyed in, for example, a Bank of America's investor survey, and then the actual positioning in equities, then we still have a pretty sharp disconnect between a fairly upbeat positioning in equities and a, a fairly downbeat view on the economy going forward. And I would like to see some sort of reconnect between those two surveys before I really trust the signal that uh, we've bottomed in um, in risk assets. Uh, we also debated that last week um, with our guest, Dario Perkins, that um, it is hard to see how earnings can live up to, to expectations uh, from from analysts this year, uh, we are rather in for a, a, a substantially negative surprise compared to the um, to the quite elevated expectations that we have for for earnings this year uh, across um, global equity markets. So, by the end of the day, no, I, I I need some more compelling signals from central banks that they are actually close to pausing before I think it's time to. Um, put the pedal to the metal again for risk assets. Yeah. Well, mate, I remain uh, short myself, the S&P 500, mostly because central banks have told me that they want financial conditions to tighten pretty openly. So who am I not to have the trade on? But as somebody has actually pointed out uh, on Twitter, there's an account which is called Paper Trader Alf. So apparently, you know, all my trades are paper trades because, you know, who am I? I never managed money. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a paper trader, Andreas. That's my <laughs> my fun take of the week. I mean, people just uh, trying everything to, to make fun of us. But that's okay. That's okay. Let's have fun together. I still have the trade on anyway. I'm short S&P 500, short credit spreads. I agree with you from that perspective. Um, unless we see inflation slowing down markedly, literally slowing down, not only... Um, slowing down, but also the pace of deceleration needs to be an aggressive one to allow central banks to take the, the foot of the gas pedal. It, it is very hard to make a case for, for risk assets here. Yeah, I think inflation has peaked, 
um, at least if you look at it in yearly terms. But if you look at the monthly figures, um, they are hardly comforting yet. So uh, I guess I perfectly agree with your view on, on that. I also wanted to just quickly share my fun take of the week. Uh, some of you may have noted, um, but Kathy Wood, um, she suggested that we um, could be um, faced with, I think, 30 to 50% real GDP growth <laughs> based on some weird assumptions on artificial intelligence. Um, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, uh, fair, fair enough, fair enough. You want to be long artificial intelligence, but 50% GDP growth in real terms? Um, I don't even think it's feasible in nominal terms, even with the inflation that we see right now. Um, so, Kathy, to the uh, moon, to the yeah. moon. I, I, I have to say that that was a, a complete mishit from uh, from her. I mean, 30 50%, uh, 30-50% per year, Andreas, I think was the statement. That's 30, 30, 50, 30 to 50% yearly GDP growth. Is that what yeah. she said? Yeah. <laughs> If you compound that, it's basically abundant wealth, guys. We solved all our problems, no need to work anymore yeah. to the moon. It's done. Just buy ARC and you're done for life. Yes. <laughs> I think that's right about it. But otherwise, uh, if you don't want to buy the ARC ETF, uh, I would still suggest that if we have any smart uh, listeners out there uh, that uh, they should consider setting up a short Steno, Steno ETF <laughs> because um, yes. the trade I put on last week was it uh, with the long dollar position it didn't really pay off uh, so I'm running at a, at a bad hit rate currently I have to admit that uh, don't get yourself beaten up too much Andreas it's fine it's fine everybody makes uh, wrong calls me included so important is the macro analysis underlying and uh, the facts and uh, macro models and analysis we put behind we can be wrong at times everybody is anyway it's all about risk management talking about risk management and uh, macro models and analysis and trades it is time to introduce our guest for this episode of the macro trading floor he is a uh, fan favorite an extremely nice guy and a sharp macro analyst he's the ceo and founder of 42 macro darius dale pleasure to host a true gentleman and uh, a bro of the show. I think I'll call you that, Darius. Uh, welcome to the show, Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Yo, it's so good to be on with you guys, man. Big, big fans, big fans of the show, big fans of you both as people, and uh, very excited to be here. Good to hear you. Darius, you're in Paris right now. What the hell are you doing here across the pond? <laughs> oh, bonjour, mon ami. Uh, no, I'm, I'm gaining weight is, is my number one activity here. <laughs> this I think is it's cheese thing. time. It's cheese and coco van and all that beautiful stuff <laughs> that there is in France. Yeah, yeah. So that is, let's bring the macro heat to the macro trading floor podcast, something you do very well, generally speaking. So to set up the macro thesis underlying your macro investment idea, I think we have to talk about growth, inflation and liquidity. Do, we, do you want us to walk us through all of these points? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're at 42 Macro, I think, you know, the number one thing we specialize in is understanding where we are in the in the key macro cycles that matter. And I'm certainly not the arbiter or the inventor of the key macro cycles that matter, but I certainly am, um, you know, smart enough to observe them and, and recognize what matters. And if you think about, if you're trying to predict asset market returns, dispersion within asset classes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the stuff that matters to both retail and institutional investors, you need to understand three big things. Number one, where are you in the growth cycle? Number two, where are you in the inflation cycle? And number three, how do those two things combine to tell you where you are in the liquidity cycle? And the key summary of my thesis, and we can unpack it, you know, all those different dynamics, is that we are nowhere near the bottom of the liquidity cycle. The growth cycle is, we're nowhere near, we're even further behind in the growth cycle. And the inflation cycle is, is, is peaking and likely to inflect, but not inflect fast enough to give a signal to the policymakers to cause an inflection in the liquidity cycle. So we're, we're quite bearish here on risk assets and our core macro thesis is we're, we're not core, but developing macro thesis is that we should start getting longer of duration. Uh, Darius, I wanted to ask you about those famous last words saying that inflation has peaked already. I've tried <laughs> to say that a couple of times this year uh, and it has backfired like crazy on me, uh, but you're actually convinced that we are past the peak 
in terms of inflation pressures now? Yeah. So, I mean, what does that even mean, right? Like, who cares if we're past the peak? You know? <laughs> and I've been saying this the whole time, right? We're going to see a mechanical peak. And, and you actually, guys, you, you talked about this in your, uh, one of your recent episodes. Just because we, we've, we've peaked doesn't mean like, you know, it doesn't, it, the, 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 suddenly the Fed can, can do an about face and pivot, right? And, and, and there's sort of three kind of key statistics within the inflation uh, dynamics. And we're talking about the U.S. economy here because that's what's driving the boat from a Fed reaction function perspective. There's three kind of key statistics that I'll point everyone to. Uh, number one, who cares about the damn year over year numbers? We all know the base effects are going to drag the time series lower um, over the next 12 months. The Fed is not focused on the year over year numbers. The Fed is concerned about the sequential dynamics and in inflation because they understand that getting to where they want to be in 2023 and in 2024, they need to break the back of month on month, three month on three month annualized inflation. And right now, on a headline basis, we're still running north of 10 percent uh, uh, in terms of three month annualized. Uh, and, and two statistics that I think are most important to the Fed outside of core PC, obviously, that's their preferred measure, which is still north of three or four percent on a three-month annualized basis. You look at sticky CPI, uh, that's Atlanta Fed's you know, uh, calculation of things that uh, have very lagged uh, uh, changes in price, and that's at 6.5% on an annualized, three-month annualized basis. And median CPI, which is the median of everything in the, in the dang inflation basket, and that's over 6%, that's 6.2% three-month annualized. And so we got to get these numbers back towards two. You know, like, And it's just like, who cares about the year over year? We are so far away from getting inflation to a level that will convince Powell, who said last week that we got to see clear and convincing evidence that we broke in the back of inflation. I mean, this guy sounds more and more like Paul Roker every day. So, Darius, uh, we discussed with Andreas on the podcast that it's not only about the deceleration in inflation, but it's the pace of deceleration and the mm -hmm. composition of this deceleration that really will matter. We have observed that core services PS CPI, very sticky component of the CPI basket, is actually the highest in 30 years. Yeah. So they will have to try and bring this down. Now, of course, the most important question is, what is your view on the pace of deceleration and the composition of deceleration going forward? Do you think... The Fed gets what they want. Do you think it gets what they want, you know, in, in a slower manner that they hope for or in a faster manner that they hope for? Yeah, no, I think if you want one headline from our interview today, I think if you're bullish on risk assets, you want a recession. And, and here's why. Our analysis and, you know, I think we've built some some pretty world class models in terms of being able to project the pace of growth, the pace of inflation, you know, the magnitude of the change, et cetera, et cetera. We don't get to a sustainably low level of inflation at any point in time in our next 12-month time horizon. And in our most bullish scenario, and we're analyzing, uh, we're forecasting the three-month annualized rate of change of core PCE um, you know, as a derivative of, of our primary inflation model, we don't get below 3% on a three-month annualized basis at any point in time. Or sorry, not below 2% at any point in time in our next 12-month time horizon. We start to break down below 3% let's call it in, in sometime between August and October, but I don't think 3% is going to cut it. I mean, this is, again, this is a Fed that is as a, that recently reiterated last week and in the Fed minutes that they have no deliberations to change their 2% inflation target. And, and again, we're talking about going from north of 5% year over year, 4%, 3% annualized or three-month annualized, and they got to get the latter number at least towards 2 which will happen before the former number, the year-over-year -year number, gets below three. I just think that this perception that, that we're waiting on a dovish pivot out of the Fed is the wrong mantra. What's going to happen before we get the dovish pivot out of the Fed is that we're going to see a more significant slowdown in growth and potentially a corporate, not even potentially at this point, I think our base case is now shifting to a corporate profit recession. I mean, I woke up this morning to Apple raising wages 10% in the U.S., NVIDIA cutting sales guidance. Facebook uh, guiding to significant decrease in profits. You know, we've seen it from Google. We've seen it from Netflix. We've seen it from all these major companies. And guess what? If these companies are struggling with their P&L and their operating budgets, every company is. These companies have more leverage over their workers than anybody. And so I think what's more likely to happen is we get a significant growth slowdown. We get a significant, we get a corporate profit recession. And those two dynamics combine to push inflation lower. And obviously that's the bumpiest path that asset markets could take. Because what you would prefer is seeing just everything happen quickly and the Fed pivots, but it's not going to happen quickly. And that's the big problem for markets. 
if you look at uh, the messages that we've received from the Federal Reserve over the past week, uh, I took notice of, uh, in particular, one member, uh, Bustich, saying that there is a possibility that we will pause by September after a very hawkish summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, which kind of probability do you put on that scenario? I'll take his word for that. First, let's start. Bostic is not a voter this year, but I do believe that he's been instrumental in helping guide uh, financial markets to where the Fed is today. So I do believe his words matter. His words carry weight. Um, he's you know he's kind of at the epicenter of inflation for the Fed. If you think about all the inflation data and statistics that the Atlanta Fed uh, collects, and so I definitely put a lot of weight on his words. If they pause in September, it's not because they've achieved their inflation objective, or sorry, I'd say it's because they've achieved their inflation objective the wrong way. Mm. We, see, we see a you know recessionary conditions develop, and again, I think it's it's poppycock when people try to predict recessions because, by definition, a recession is a statistically significant deviation from trend and growth. There's not a model on earth that can predict that that is functional in a normal down in normal times, right? Oh. And so you know there's this, and, and so to, in order for the Fed to pause. You know, at least according to our baseline forecast for growth and inflation, they're not going to have any reason to pause from a reported statistics perspective. So that just means financial conditions have tightened significantly enough to cause them to pause. And so that can't be a bull case if you're sitting here today in late May talking about the Fed's going to pause or pivot in September. They're going to pause or pivot either because financial conditions tighten too much or because the economy actually goes into recession, which obviously would cause a further tightening of financial conditions. So there's no easy way out here. So that is basically are painting a picture where for the Fed to slow down inflation, they effectively would have probably to hit growth substantially from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the second angle that you want to bring to the table, which is growth. Mm-hmm. And your forecast on growth doesn't seem to be the most rosy going forward. But can you quantify um, what are you talking about in terms of you know the decline and the slowdown in the U.S. growth, real GDP this year? Uh, but also why are we slowing down in growth in the first place? So we started this year, and 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 you know you and I have been talking for for months about this. The number one thing I said that it's going to change at, the, at this at, by the end of the year that's got to change is consensus expects above trend growth in 2022, and we have to go from above trend growth not only in a reported standpoint but also from an expectations perspective to below trend growth and significant and potentially significantly below trend growth. And if you look, if you sort of interpolate, so we, you know we don't spend a lot of time. Uh, discussing and talking about GDP because it's such a lagging statistic. You know, we're generally focused on forecasting leading indicators because that's what the market tends to be more cared about. That, that's what the markets care about. Um, but if you want to talk about it on GDP terms, you know, we may not grow at all on a Q4 to Q4 basis. You know, right now we're still, you know, if you look at economist consensus expectations, there's somewhere around like one and a half percent on a Q4 to Q4 basis for 2022. And that's come down significantly. I think at the beginning of the year, it was somewhere north of two and a half percent, you know, close to three percent. And so we've we've done a lot of slowing in expectations terms, but I'm I'm still not convinced that we you know we we're done either slowing expectations or slowing from a rate of change perspective. Um, you know, obviously, once you talk about the you know the accumulated impact of financial tightening, and this answers the second half of your question: Why are we slowing? Well, one, obviously, the base effects are, are deepening in the same way that inflation base effects are receding. But that's that, that's sort of the easy answer. The harder answer is, okay, when you look at how financialized our economy has become and how indebted our economy has become, if you look at it on an aggregate basis, mostly driven by the growth in public sector debt, but private sector debt, particularly corporate debt, uh, has grown substantially in recent years as well. There's sort of three dynamics that are happening. They're all coalescing to slow growth. One, we've seen a, a, a shock in real interest rates. Um, so if you look at, you know, sort of, let's see, let's call the 10-year tip shield or the 10-year nominal yield, less, um, you know, the Cleveland Fleds and 10-year inflation expectations component that allows you to take uh, the time series back to, you know, kind of the 60s and 70s. Every single time we've got a three sigma uh, shock on, on, on that metric, we've seen a 10, 15, 20 point decline in the ISM PMI. And we're right now we're kind of tracking around down eight. Um, so, we're, you know, we got you know, potentially more than a double of slowing left to do based on this accumulated metric. And that Z-score, by the way, is trailing three years. I hate when people talk about Z-scores and don't give you the observation period. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you don't tell me what the observate the sample size is, but I digress. We've also seen a um, three sigma shock in th- on a three-year basis in mortgage rates. In fact, in fact, as far back as we can get the mortgage rate data, it's just, you know this is the biggest uh, shock we've ever seen. Um, and we've always seen a substantial slowing in housing market activity after that. 
Um, and then lastly, we've seen a three sigma shock uh, in corporate borrowing costs as measured by the uh, the, Bloom, the yield to worse uh, statistic from the Bloomberg uh, U.S. Corporate Credit Index. And so we have, you know, over the next 12 months, already a significant de- degree of accumulated growth slowing to do. And that's fine. I think a lot of investors kind of understand that. I mean, everyone's been talking about recession this, recession that since the yield curve inverted. But what has not actually happened is a substantial inflection in corporate profit expectations. The S&P 500's next 12 months earnings statistic continues to trend up and to the right, despite all the negative guidance we've seen from some of these major companies, despite the accumulated impact of of, of financial uh, tightening that we're likely to see, despite steepening base effects, and despite the damn market telling us every other day that things are getting worse. And so to me, I I just don't think, I I think there's there's an expectation in the market that we are closer to the bottom than the top. And I want to be very clear about this. That is a dangerous expectation sitting here in late May. I, I, I'm kind of impressed that you managed to answer this question without saying the word China. Uh, so let me ask you about China, because uh, we've had terrible PMI numbers out of China due to the lockdowns. Uh, and the last time we had such terrible numbers out of China, we basically had similar numbers out of the Western world with a two to three months time lag. Yeah. What's your view on the connection between what's going on in China right now and the Western world? Oh, great question, Andreas. Uh, so I, I think China has sufficiently decoupled and they started decoupling back in, let's call it the very beginning of 2021. China's been on its own growth cycle for a while now. Um, you know, China really started slowing and, and tightening the, the screws from a macro prudential perspective, you know, let's call it last summer. And we're now obviously seeing the, 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 the severe impact of zero COVID policy on their economy. I mean, they're, they're, they're in recession. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a policy-driven recession. And it's a policy-driven recession that can have a, a very quick recovery as a function of policy as well. Um, you know, China's, China's you know, their, 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 in, their growth cycle is likely to inflect higher. Um, in the coming months, and, and and I would suspect by you know let's call it June, July, uh, we'll be seeing a, a pretty substantial recovery in, in the Chinese economy. Their liquidity cycle is already inflected. Uh, you know, one measure we like to track that sort of accumulates all the impact of the PBOC's policy initiatives is, is three months shy bore, and we're finally starting to see some real movement there to the downside. Nothing like what we've seen in previous Chinese reflation episodes, but something enough to to give me confidence that the Chinese credit cycle. And growth cycle are, are likely to have a you know a decent upturn in, in the coming months, but that's the problem. Decent is not massive, you know. If you go back to 2008, 2009, 2011, 2012, 2015, 2016, and even in sort of 2020, China is stimulated very aggressively to reflate its economy in each of those episodes. I mean, you know, just kind of you know using that same three month Shibor statistic. You know, China's the three month Shibor declined about two to three hundred basis points in each of those episodes as a function of the triple R cuts that they introduced, the easing of medium term lending, uh, financing, uh, the medium term financing scheme, open market operations, et cetera, all the things that the PBOC does to ease uh, credit conditions in China. We've seen a 25 basis point peak to trough decline thus far, or sorry, you know, peak to present decline thus far. And so it's telling me that they're doing enough to cause China to heat up but not doing nearly enough to cause the rest of the world to heat up. And there's this, this saying on Wall Street that when China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Well, they're doing the opposite of sneezing. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're jogging, but the rest of the world's not going to you know, get sweaty. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, what I, that's my thesis on China. I think China's moving on a march into the beat of its own drum here. And now that is, we talked about inflation, we talked about growth. There is a third element in your macro analysis that is prevailing, which is liquidity. Mm-hmm. And so there are many definitions of that. And Andres and I gone back and forth on this podcast, try to help the audience understand what the heck is liquidity, bank reserves, and all of that. One statistics before I ask a question, bank reserves in the US have already dropped by $900 billion dollars. Oh, yeah. Since November last year, we haven't even started quantitative tightening, which is supposed to draw down bank reserves a bit further. Um, what is your assessment of liquidity going forward? How do you define that in the first place? And why is it important in your macro understanding of things? Yeah, so let's, let's answer that in reverse. It's important because it's become important, right? Prior to 2008, liquidity was not a dr- substantial driver of financial markets. Um, prior to 2008, growth and inflation were bigger drivers of financial markets. And we've back tested this six ways to Sunday. So, you know, you can take my word for it. Since 2008, you pull up a chart and, and the, the global G5 central bank balance sheet has a 0.9 something R squared to global equity market capitalization. 
And so, you know, it's you don't want to boil down, you know, the significance and sophistication of global macro risk management to one dynamic. But it, if you if just based on that R squared, you need to get, you know, the the, the growth and, and the dollar weighted central bank average or dollar weighted central bank, um, you know, price level. Correct. And, the you know, it's a lot goes into forecasting where that line is going to go, how fast it's going to change and wh- when it's going to inflect. And right now, you know, we're already seeing a pretty, you know, we're over, you know, a trillion dollars in decline. If you look at on a G5, um, you know, G5 uh, currency adjusted basis, that could go down two, three trillion. I mean, we know the Fed's going to take a trillion dollars out of it. ECB's done buying, you know, uh, the Bank of England's done buying. And so, you know, to me, it's 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 when does that line start to inflect? What would cause the line to inflect higher? It's a significant slowdown in growth that causes a significant, you know, sort of uh, correction in inflation. And right now, both of those things are still ahead of us, not, you know, happening, you know, they're starting to happen right now, but they're still ahead of us. So, you know, to me, that that's that's what I mean by liquidity. Now, we can unpack all the different dynamics, Treasury General account, standing repo facility, all these things that sort of have, uh, you know, sort of secondary consequences for markets. But one thing I'll bring up while we're still on the subject, to me, I think the number one thing that I think investors miss this year, or not miss this year, but but that aren't they aren't talking about enough is the fact that the the Fed hiked reverse repo rates. They want that $2 trillion sitting in reverse repo to stay put. They don't want it going back out into financial markets. They don't want it. And and Janet Yellen um, um, tag team with the reduction in bill issuance. They don't want that money going into the real economy. And I think, you know, investors, and you know, you've seen me tweet about this. You actually made a joke the other week uh, about this. I've been trying to yell and scream at people, get your damn nose off the tree and pull back and look at the force. Janet Yellen, Jay Powell, everyone who controls these facilities and dynamics are telling you they want a reduction in liquidity. They want a reduction yeah. in credit growth. And that's that's where that's where we are in the liquidity cycle. Darius, let me ask you uh, what I will call the trillion dollar question in this <laughs> in this case. Um, is it at all possible to imagine a scenario where the Fed will restart QE with inflation running? Say one, two, three percentage points above target. Uh, absolutely not. I, I think that's a z- like. Not, there's no zero or a hundred percent probabilities in financial markets and then economic forecasting, but that's about as close to zero as it gets. And here's why: yeah. the Federal Reserve is a committee based on human beings who have the same behavioral dynamics that we have as investors in financial markets. That have the same behavioral dynamics that we have as people when we get up and speak in front of a room. They're embarrassed right now. They got a call very wrong, very publicly, and it's hurting all 350 million Americans right now. They just got the inflation call wrong. They kept their foot on the gas pedal for far too long, despite you know record fiscal stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. And right now, I think 2022 is more about recovering the their their credibility and apologizing to the American public, just as Powell did uh, a couple weeks ago, than it is about Let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's get inflation under control. I think they have two objectives right now, regain credibility and get inflation under control. So to answer your question, the, the concept of saving financial markets and, 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 and helping, you know, market functioning to me, it's, it's such a, it's such a, that's, that's like 2023 kind of discussion. I think they will eventually pivot back to doing QE because things, conditions in the markets are likely to get bad enough, but we're just not there yet. And a couple of statistics I'll throw at you real quickly. You know, right now the S and P five hundred, if you take their the next twelve months earnings estimate, which again continues to make higher highs on a trending basis, I still think it's preposterous. Um, that number is right around kind of let's call it five point seven, five point eight percent. You know, you take the next twelve month earnings uh, divided by the price of the market. You know, we can get up to like ten, twelve percent in terms of you know, like you look at where we were in two thousand one at the lows. You look at where we obviously this is not two thousand eight, but even you know where we were in twenty eighteen, et cetera. You know, we, we're, we've seen nothing yet in terms of the kind of market response that would cause the Fed to pivot and do QE. Financial conditions are still technically in accommodative territory. If you look at the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index, you know, we are we are a long way away from QE. And that's the biggest problem financial markets. It's because there's no event. This is just cycle risk. And we haven't had to manage cycle risk on a sustained basis to the downside since 2008, 2009. And prior to that, it was 2000 to 2002. You know, we're so used to these things happening. You know, China devaluation, 
you know, uh, you know, let's call it Q4 18 is a, you know, Powell made a mistake and said something stupid. You know, COVID shut down the economy. You know, we're all, we're so used to managing event risk as investor, investors, and we do, we just forget that hey, man, this, it could just be getting worse and worse and worse for an extended period of time. And as long as that happens, you will not see any Fed reaction function to the dovish side. And so, Darius, as we talk about cycles here, and uh, we debated the growth cycle, the inflation cycle, and now the liquidity cycle, it's time to stick your neck out on the macro trading floor, which means it's time for the actionable investment idea. So what's that going to be? I'm a firm believer, as you know, of, of always sticking my neck out. I, I think if you don't stick your neck out, you're, you're not helping people. Um, and so, you know, what we the number one thing I think we do well at 42 Macro outside of helping investors understand where we are in these cycles is putting our money where our mouth is. You know, we, we, we run a you know, pretty sophisticated portfolio construction process that's, you know, knock on wood, it's done really well this year. Um, you know, the, the, despite, you know, all the troubles we're seeing in financial markets. And I think the number one thing we, we, we aren't allocated to in size yet that I think makes very much sense for where we are in the, in the, in the growth, inflation and liquidity cycles is duration. You know, and, and it's 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 the, it, to me, it's the most obvious trade. Yet I, I have not had the, 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 the courage to put it on in size. I mean, you talk about whenever you're having a significant slowdown in growth, you tend to see uh, the long bond rally. Um, if you, you talk about, let's call it a, w- w- one of the things we've, you know, we've back tested this, the framework of our grid framework, and I'll let, you know, the, the, the listeners and viewers, uh, you know, Google what that is. You know, when you're talking about a minus two sigma delta growth slowdown, which is where we're likely to be throughout the second half of this year and into the early part of, of next year, you're talking about a 18 to 20% annualized return in the long run. Whenever you're talking about a, let's call it a minus one to two sigma inflation slowdown, which we're likely to eventually get. As a function of the growth slowdown, you're talking about an 18 to 30 percent annualized uh, uh, return in the long bond, depending on which regime you're in. Whenever you're talking about <clears throat> a significant re- or quantitative tightening in a growth slowdown, which is what the Fed is doing, by the way, that's part of the problem. The Fed is being pro-cyclical here. You're talking about somewhere between 20 to 30 percent annualized returns in the long bond. So all roads lead to long bond could rally 20 to 30 percent from here. You know that that just just from a back to pure back testing perspective alone. Well, now when you layer on the fact that the world is short duration, to to you look at around financial market indicators almost to the most significant degree possible. We've never seen this kind of cash on the sidelines before, and it has nothing to do with the equity markets. It has everything to do with the fact that major fixed income institutions, insurance funds, pension funds, the whole world has been very short of duration since let's go back to the beginning of 2021. You're seeing this in the, in the spread between uh, bill, uh, you know, bills and, and OIS, uh, similar maturity OIS, you know, near record lows. Everyone is crowded into the short end of the curve. So not only do we have uh, sort of uh, back-tested conditions that favor being very long, the long bond, we have the whole street on the wrong side of that trade. And so to me, you know, I'm sort of talking myself into the thesis as, as I go along here, I think when the when when the long bond starts to move, it's going to move and it's going to it's not going to let people into the trade. And so that's sort of my my long winded way of saying, you know. And again, I know you guys like to to help uh, to have people have uh, easy expressions for the trade. And I think there's a very easy uh, expression for the trade. Just go buy the EDV ETF. That's the long bond. You know, that's the TLT is not enough juice for me. I think the juice is on the furthest end of the curve. I'd say go buy zeros, but I like to get a yield. I like to get some risk premium while I'm at it. So. Um, just go buy EDV, the ETF, and we can talk risk management and all that stuff. But to me, you know, maybe we see another high in yields on the on the long end of the curve. Let's say we back up to 325, 330. But that's probably it because the whole world needs to get into this trade. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you a question uh, that kind of relates to your macro thesis and your suggested trade of buying the long bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have quite a bit of personal stake in this question, so I'm really looking forward to the answer. Let's suppose that we get this rally in the long bond and long bond yields will will head lower from here. Will that be enough to stop the uh, almost bizarre bleeding in duration-sensitive equities as well? Um, Being concrete here, ARKK from my side. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. You're you're a brave man, dude. You're going to make a lot of money in that trade. I'm just not sure you're going to make a lot of money in the next few months, (laughs) which is fine. (laughs) Um, um, So uh, praying for you and Kathy, my friend. Uh, So uh, no, what I think was more likely to happen, and this is how, you know, sort of hedge funds make money that all the major, you know, sort of pod shop style institutions. 
you know, they, they sort of implicitly make factor bets without taking factor bets. And I think what's more likely to happen is this sort of rotation from growth to value that sort of investors are, you know, either making money on or getting killed on is going to reverse. Now, that doesn't mean the absolute performance of the securities has to be positive, but you're likely to see a significant factor reversal. And so to answer the question, I think ARK's probably going to make new lows, but it probably makes new lows at a lower speed than energy stocks coming off their highs, than you know, financial stocks going down further, industrial stocks going down further. I think there's a lot of money trapped, or sort of not of hot money, you know, sort of in terms of institutional flows that have really chased these sectors, and they're, and they're very appropriate to chase these sectors. You know, we have a very uh, strong view that when the Fed finally pivots dovish, the dollar is going to go into free fall. And, and I don't want to say that like, you know, the, to make a headline, but the reality is we, we've seen, if you look at the last two to three years of, of sort of capital inflows into the U.S. economy and, and how we measure that is the annual change in our net international investment position, you're talking like seven, eight, nine trillion dollars of inflows into the U.S. economy that are going, not only are they going to head out, they're going to head out in a major way once the, you know, once the Fed pivots dovishly. You know, we'll be closer to the bottom of the liquidity cycle and growth cycles by then. The dollar is going to get smoked. Emerging markets are going to substantially outperform U.S. equities. International equities are going to substantially outperform U.S. equities. Um, uh, sort of what else would happen? So, uh, 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 sort of value stocks will substantially outperform growth stocks. Cyclicals will substantially outperform defensive. So investors are on the right side of that trade from a longer term perspective. It's just that the process of getting there is likely to cause a lot of significant pain for people who've positioned for that longer term view. So uh, that's my long winded way of saying expect a significant reversal in sector and style factor dispersion, you know, between now and let's call it the end of this, these the cycles playing out. Darius, as the last question, we always ask our guests, uh, what could go wrong with your trade, the long bond trade, I mean? This is so tricky, right? Because this is on one hand, I think what's the long bond in terms of those back tests, you know, when the Fed is tightening into a slowdown, the long bond has historically tended to rally. It's because the long bond is more forward looking than the, you know, the kind of the belly and the shorter end of the curve. And it's saying, well, haha, I know you're going to pivot. You know, I, you're, you're tightening into a slowdown that's going to cause you to pivot. And to me, I think what's very different about this dynamic goes back to where we started the conversation. The Fed has a lot of hate bell to get inflation to a level that they could be comfortable pivoting, partially because it's their mandate. But I think just as equally important because they're trying to regain credibility as an institution. And so I don't know if the long bond is going to have that, ha ha, I'm smarter than you Fed moment. And that to me is the biggest risk of the trade is that the long bond just says, no, 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 these guys are very serious and they're not going to, to lower interest rates anytime in the forecastable horizon. If you look at the euro dollar curve or the OIS curve at any point in time, that can cause me to be comfortable being long of this position. And so to me, I think that's a very legitimate risk. And so, this, which is why we have not seen a substantial rally in long bonds, even though the conditions are very clearly favoring it, you know, at least from a market response perspective, equities down a lot, et cetera. You said that you didn't want to make a headline with that dollar in free fall comment, but I actually think that you will make a headline in itself with uh, this suggested long bond idea because I've tried to uh, to tell people that it was uh, close to being the timing to buy long bonds, and Jesus Christ, I get a pushback every time I do that. So um, it was a great pleasure interviewing you, Darius. Um, just uh, ultimately here, if our listeners want to find out more about your uh, macro shop, uh, where do they find more information? Absolutely. I'm uh, 42macro.com. Uh, appreciate that, Andres. Uh, and then um, I'm on uh, Twitter at 42macro, D-Dale, D-D-A-L-E. Uh, before we say goodbye to Darius, a word of endorsement from my side. Um, Darius is a very kind person and a very good macro analyst. His work at 42macro is awesome. Go and check him out. Thanks uh, really for being here, Darius. Thank you so much, man. That's really kind of you. You guys are the best, man. Really, really appreciate that. So guys, you heard the man, Darius Dale himself, going with the long EDV, which is a Vanguard Extended Duration ETF. It's the brother or sister, whatever that is, of the TLT, the famous TLT ETF, the, the yes. long bond ETF. And uh, effectively, it's a, a, a long 
long duration fixed income trade, uh, treasury trade, so 20 year plus uh, bonds. He's expecting yields to drop effectively over a time horizon over the next three to six months, one can say. And uh, his thesis, Andreas, is based on the fact that the growth cycle is heading down, the inflation cycle is heading down, and liquidity is being withdrawn from markets. So shall we talk about each of the three components of Darius Dale macro thesis and macro idea? Let's do that. And uh, I mean, first of all, it was nice to meet a bond bull for once. <laughs> there are not a lot of those around at the moment. Um, but to look at his thesis, uh, I, I tend to think that he's right on the direction of, of, of all three. Uh, so if we start with the growth picture, um, I feel fairly certain that we will see spillovers from the lockdown that we've seen in China uh, mm-hmm. to US growth, to European growth. Um, and usually there is a time lag of two to three months between the very negative news that we see out of China and the subsequent um, negative news in the US growth wise. So on that direction, I feel fairly certain. We've also seen how all regional surveys um, have all shown very weak numbers uh, for the um, for the US growth as well. So on the growth side, I struggle to see any positive momentum, um, not even in um, in more consumer-based uh, growth measures. We've heard over and over that consumers are strong, uh, but we can already see the demand destruction in the retail sales numbers, for example, as well, if we adjust them for inflation. People are buying roughly the same, but mm-hmm. at, at higher prices. Maybe they're buying a little less, actually, but at higher prices, which is not a sign of strength in my view. Uh, by the end of the day. How do you view the growth situation, Elf? Well, I think we need to be geeks about money here. At mm. the end of the day, this was a fixed income uh, podcast, one can say episode, mm. and this is my home turf. So I'm going to swim a little bit in the realm of fixed income and money, if you don't mind, Andreas. We're talking about the growth cycle, right? So uh, people that subscribe to to the free newsletter, the Macro Compass, know that one of the main macro inputs I use is the credit impulse. Globally speaking, I aggregate the G5 um, biggest economies. And the reason why I do that is, as my my, uh, shirt here says, central banks print bank reserves and not real economy money. And real economy money in our system is, is mostly credit. And... This is basically the bank deposits that can get spent by you and I, Andres, and the listeners. So yes. if you're able to measure the amount of bank deposits in the private sector, non-financial private sector, so not pension funds, not asset managers, but our um, bank deposits, if this amount is getting up or down, or also the pace of increase or decrease in the spendable bank deposits changes with mm-hmm. the lag, also, of course, the amount of money that flows to the real economy changes. And so earnings slow down, growth slows down, service slow down, and all of that, when we are decelerating the pace of credit creation, which is exactly what has happened since the mid of 2021. Again, with the lag, we are in the middle of 2022, we inevitably see a slowdown in economic activity. So I do agree with Darius that the, the impulse of growth has been decelerating for a while, and it is still decelerating. There has been no pickup in credit creation around the world to justify a turnaround in the growth impulse anytime soon. So I do agree with him. Yeah. The big question when we move to the inflation outlook is whether this slowing demand side is sufficient to drag inflation uh, substantially lower. Uh, and that will, of course, depend uh, on the uh, on the supply side. If we look at uh, the latest developments in the uh, U.S. CPI index, then I've basically noted how what I call the late cyclical subcomponent rent of shelter has mm. continued to increase, uh, and shelter costs uh, they make up around forty percent of core CPI thereabout. Uh, so this is a, an important category, uh, and to me, this is maybe the most late cyclical component at all. In the, um, in the inflation index since it lacks the development in real estate markets and financial markets in general. Um, so this is the one to watch. We need that component to slow down before we can really trust a uh, substantial turnaround in core inflation in the US in my view. Uh, so of course, year over year, it will come down, but that's basically due to base effects. If we look at the monthly figures, they are still hardly comforting, I would say. 
So Andreas, on the inflation front, the price pressures are broadening towards the stickiest components of the basket, the, the core services, let's say. Those are also the, the laggards uh, you know, in, in the cycle, as you just said. And one has to expect that this broadening in, within, within the laggards and the stickiest part of the core inflation basket will probably remain month on month for a while. As you said, they lag financial markets, they lag housing prices, mm. and now it's a time where they pick up. There is obviously a, a case in which goods inflation can actually turn into goods deflation because goods yes. inflation has been extremely high due to, to pandemic distortions for 2021. There is a case where if demand slows down enough, then you might have even goods deflation. So the real question is, what is the balance between the two? Is the balance going to turn towards goods deflation in a way that it overcomes the core services inflation pickup or not? And the reality is that the bar is relatively high for markets to react dovishly on inflation slowdown. Because as we pointed out a couple of times, inflation needs to slow down and then it needs to slow down more at at least or more than what the Federal Reserve and inflation break-evens are already implying. So the inflation swap curve is already downward sloping and the Federal Reserve is already expecting inflation to slow down to below 4% by the end of the year. So if that happens, they will, of course, you know, they don't have to go Volcker. That will help the bond market, of course, if they don't go Volcker. But for bond market returns to print positive, you need, you know, that inflation print to slow down pretty markedly over the next few months. And at the moment, to be honest, I am not really sure uh, about that. I'm not sure either that inflation will print in, in Volcker land and powerless to go full Volcker. But I, I am much more certain in, in risk-reward terms that gro real growth is slowing down than inflation is slowing down enough for bond markets to rally. I'm, I tend to be a simple guy. Uh, so I also like simple rules in terms of when to enter a long uh, bond trade. Uh, and I actually find it fairly compelling if you look at historical uh, data evidence to go long the long bond as soon as the year over year inflation rate peaks mm -hmm. so i tend to think the market is simple in that sense that momentum matters uh, also in in yearly terms even in a situation where you don't necessarily get back to two percent as fast as the fed anticipates uh, so at least the headwind is taken away from the long bond trade from an inflation perspective, I think. Uh, whether it turns into a tailwind is another discussion, uh, but the headwind is, is removed now. So the other thing that Darius pointed out is that the liquidity cycle is actually deteriorating, which means that liquidity broadly defined, and we can talk about that, is being withdrawn from financial markets. And um, so let me ask you, Andreas, uh, how do you define liquidity, liquidity in the context of a bond trade? So why would it matter in the first place? And which liquidity are we talking about? And do you agree this liquidity has been withdrawn anyway? Uh, well, I, I suppose that uh, liquidity can be defined in various ways. But in this particular context, we're talking about bank reserves. Um, so if you look at the development in bank reserves across both the US and Europe, uh, we should expect bank reserves to shrink during the second half of the year as a consequence of, um, first of all, QT um, in the uh, US and in Europe, um, the early repayments of the TLTROs. Mm. Um, and when we look at liquidity, uh, we should also note how there is a connection between liquidity slash bank reserves and so-called repo rates. And I think this matters um, in, in this environment because what usually happens when liquidity shrinks is that it becomes less expensive to short bonds. Mm -hmm. um, and if that holds true for the liquidity outlook over the second half of the year, then it, of course, could matter also for the directional view on, uh, on bonds. So... Basically, the amount of bank reserves in the U.S. has already shrunk by almost one trillion since the beginning of the year. That's big. And uh, the 800 to 900 billion uh, shrinkage in bank reserves in the U.S. has been so far the result not of QT, but the result of the fact that the tax season in the U.S. has been pretty strong. And that has yeah. allowed the Treasury general account to rise, which is another 
of the um, liabilities components of the of the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and that has been offset by a reduction in in bank reserves. So the private sector has been drained by resources. Deposits have dropped in the private sector by the same amount, which is the taxes that have been paid by uh, to the government. That has uh, basically resulted in a drop in bank reserves and an increase in the Treasury general account at the Federal Reserve that the government owns. The drop in bank reserves, obviously, Andreas, it um, changes the starts to change the risk appetite composition of bank portfolios. Mm. I used to manage one in the past, and obviously, if the amount of bank reserves that you own are very large, you might be more incentivized, even at a lower risk premium that you're able to cash in, to go and look for alternatives that yield better than bank reserves in the first place. So that is corporate bonds, that is, you know, uh, some um, asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities. Because of the sheer amount that you have of bank reserves, you tend to be a bit more aggressive in your risk-seeking. Now you're getting withdrawn bank reserves. So you're less aggressive on your repo, reverse repos, on your, you know, risk-seeking activities at the end of the day. And we are likely to going to continue to see that because QT, if it's not drained by the reserve repo facility, and we are not having any evidence that the reserve repo facilities is able to sterilize that there are not enough T-bills around for these money market funds to take the money back from the reverse repo into T-bills. If that cannot happen, the only way for QT uh, to shrink the balance sheet is to shrink bank reserves as well on the liability side of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And that will compound, obviously, this risk aversion uh, marginal behavior. Am I, am I saying something that makes sense here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I, I put forward this idea that it is less expensive to short bonds in the scenario with QT. Uh, but me- quite mechanically, what happens during a quantitative tightening process is that the Federal Reserve basically leaves a portion of the inner part of the risk curve up for grabs mm-hmm. uh, for private risk takers, which basically means that you slowly but surely, like with withdraw um, private risk takers from further out the risk curve. Uh, so the first thing that usually happens during a liquidity withdrawal event is that emerging markets take uh, takes a beating. Um, then you slowly but surely see the spillovers to credit and, and so, so on and so forth. And ultimately, the interesting thing is that if you look at the historical pattern, then the safest part of the curve, for example, the treasury curve, has actually performed during QT since... Uh, the risk appetite has basically been drawn inwards on the risk curve during such a process. Yes. Basically, you remove the amount of reserves in the system at the same time uh, when you inject more collateral for the private sector to absorb. And that obviously makes the private sector more willing to park their resources in the safest spectrum as they have it up for grab, as you said. I mean, in Europe, for example, I put on the macro compass statistics last year that shown that the European Central Bank had purchased more than 100% of all the net issuance from governments in 2021. Mm. That literally meant that excess reserves were added to the system, so banks had more reserves to use, but they were completely crowded out from the issuance because the European Central Bank was taking it all. So obviously you have a more incentivized risk taker that wants to go out in the risk curve and has no paper to buy. So it needs to compete basically with the European Central Bank. And now it's exactly the opposite um, process that we are describing. And that matters, and that can be effectively a support uh, for uh, for the safest part of the risk spectrum, let's say, marginally yeah. speaking, which is treasury bonds. Andreas, so the question is, do you buy, do you sell the trade, or you just don't want to do anything with it? I'm with Darius here. So I've tried it once before this year to go long uh, bonds as a consequence of, of an analysis uh, pointing towards weaker growth and weaker inflation. But now I am, um, I'm certainly tempted to, um, to go with Darius on this one again. Which means for the inverse Steno ETF guys, it's time to short bonds. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I, so for- I finally also wanted to, to say thank you to the listener uh, who wrote to me. It's good to see that Andreas is finally out of his witness protection program and can now record shows with the light on again. <laughs> so um, here we are, um, the new apartment, uh, the light is on, and um, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that I can share my face again. <laughs> yeah. On my side, Andreas, I'm uh, not not selling the trade, uh, but I'm not buying the trade either. Um, As I pointed out a couple of times on Twitter and the Macro Compass, I still haven't seen all the stars align for me to be able to lift bonds here. And 
as my mentor used to say in a couple of smart edge fund guys I know, you don't need to catch bottom or tops uh, as long as you can catch, you know, the body of the trade, uh, 70% of it, you should be happy with it. So I, uh, you know, 10 year treasury yields were 3.15% at some point, we're 2.8 now. So there's been quite a move already. I haven't been long, I haven't been short, which means, you know, my PNL is okay. And if I see all the stars aligning, I will jump on the train as well. I'm a long-term bond bull anyway. So uh, it doesn't hurt to try and jump on the cyclical camp as well. Um, <laughs> I know that you wanted to ask as, as our final uh, words, our listeners something during this episode. Well, uh, feel very free to contact either Alfonso or me on uh, on Twitter with suggestions uh, for the program, but also um, suggested guests uh, because uh, we would like to invite um, risk takers that we maybe haven't heard of yet into the show. So please um, give us our suggestions and then remember uh, to rate the show in the podcast apps and to share it. Uh, because then we um, will guarantee you that you will be able to get this macro content for free every Sunday going forward. Guys, thank you again for the support. As a recap, we are recording on May 25th, 2022. The guest was Darius Dale, founder and CEO of Macro, 42 Macro. His trade is to be long EDV ETF, which is an extended duration Vanguard ETF. It's a long bond trade. Mr. Steno is buying it. I'm just waiting on the sidelines. Thank you for the amazing support. Please subscribe, rate us on any app and send us any feedback on Twitter and uh, we'll see you next Sunday. Ciao.